Hello and welcome to the Arab Digest podcast. I'm William Law, editor of the Digest, and my guest is Christian Coates Ulrichsen, a Middle East fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy. His most recent book, published by Hearst in 2020, is Qatar, the Gulf Crisis. We're now more than three months on from the end of the Great Gulf feud that pitted Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, and Egypt against Qatar. Time for an assessment of how the road to reconciliation is proceeding. Christian, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you for having me back. Now, the green shoots of reconciliation. uh, Well, I'd say there's several green shoots. I'm thinking about uh, the phone call that Emir Tamim had back in February to Mohammed bin Salman that was showing support for him after the uh, Biden administration released the CIA report, which uh, fingered Mohammed bin Salman uh, for the murder of Jamal Hashoshi. And then uh, the foreign minister, Saudi foreign minister, was in Doha in March. And now we have a phone call earlier this week uh, with uh, Tamim uh, calling King Salman to give his greetings at the start of Ramadan. And last week, Tamim was chatting with Mohammed bin Salman over green energy initiatives. You know, it, it all seems like everything is is really going along swimmingly. So how much should we read into these uh, all these green shoots of reconciliation? Well, I think there has been a continuous dialogue between the Saudis and the Qataris at the highest levels, as you say, between Emir Tamim and Mohammed Salman and the king himself. I think that was to be expected. I think that the Saudis had wanted to resolve the rift with Qatar for some time before it was eventually resolved at the beginning of January 2021. I believe that the, from a Saudi perspective, there was no longer any utility to continuing with the rift, that any early gains they hoped they would get, get out of it had long since dissipated, and that especially from a point of view of uh, the US administration under Trump and then under Biden being uh, feeling that the rift served nobody's purpose, the Saudis wanted to end it. And of course, with Biden coming in, the Saudis felt they had to begin to show, I think, gestures to the Biden administration that they were willing and able to learn the lessons from the past. And obviously, the Biden administration was coming in with a a very strong set of messaging that the Saudis needed to begin to draw a line under the Trump era and their policies in the region. So I think with that in mind, it's no surprise that Saudi Qatari ties have warmed fastest. I think from a Qatari point of view, they never felt the Saudis were the ones who were behind the uh, blockade in 2017. I think they always felt it was more of an Abu Dhabi-led thing. The Saudis with Mohammed bin Salman went along, partly because Mohammed bin Salman and Mohammed bin Zayed did have a close relationship, but the Saudis themselves were not driving the, uh, the, the animosity towards Qatar. And so since January, we've seen, as you've said, these several instances where the the Qataris have reached out and have once again showed that they are now aligned with the the GCC consensus, in a sense, especially over the the Khashoggi affair with with the Saudis under pressure from the US. The GCC states have, to some extent, come together. And green energy is one of those areas where both Saudi Arabia and Qatar could potentially work together quite well. They have a lot of um, overlap, a lot of sort of complementarities. And so that could be one of those areas where they can set politics aside and begin to create tangible new uh, partnerships that can really move into, I guess, this post-blockade era. 
It's come a long way, hasn't it? Because I recall in, in 2017, uh, in the early days, there was real fear that the Saudis were going to send troops across the border into Qatar. Well, yes, there were concerns, especially, I think, in Doha, that Donald Trump's initial support for the Saudis and Emiratis on, in, in the form of his tweets uh, were some sort of green light. And while we never did see a military intervention, we also have to remember that Sheikh Sabah, the Emir of Kuwait, um, alluded to one in his meeting with Donald Trump at the White House in September 2017, when he said, thanks God, we averted a military um, move, which I think got a lot of people to sit up and take notice and wonder what perhaps might have been uh, been planned behind the scenes that we weren't privy to in public. And uh, for someone like the Emir of Kuwait, who had 60 years as a diplomat, as a sort of man of regional experience, that wasn't a slip of the tongue. You know, he said what he said very clearly to make a point, not only to the international audience, but also a point to anyone in the region. And the point was, if you're still thinking about trying to force the issue and use military escalation, it's off the table, forget it. You know, we're going to now work on resolving this crisis. And of course, it took another three years, but they got there in the end. Well, you mentioned Abu Dhabi and the relations with Mohammed bin Zayed, the, the crown prince, de facto head of the United Arab Emirates. Would you call those uh, relations still pretty cool? And, and if so, what sort of strain does that put on relations between MBZ and MBS? Well, I don't think MBS and MBZ are as close as they used to be. I think the Alignment in 2015 was extremely helpful to MBS because MBZ had the relationships at the highest levels in Washington and in London and in other world capitals. And he was able to uh, push MBS's credentials, uh, especially when MBS was relatively unknown to an international audience, uh, effectively telling people in DC and in London that this is going to be the next king of Saudi Arabia one day. You'd better pay attention to him and better treat him with, uh, with respect. Now, of course, we have seen in 2018 the Khashoggi killing. The Emiratis were, I think, quite shocked by the sort of the, how far things went, and perhaps with some of the recklessness or the impulsive activity of at least people associated with MBS himself. The Emiratis did a lot of heavy lifting, I think, in DC between October 2019, uh, 2018 and July 2019, when the Saudis were effectively without an ambassador in Washington after Khalid bin Salman effectively had to leave and before Princess Rima uh, arrived in July 2019. And that was when the Emiratis were effectively going around Congress and the White House and telling people not to push too hard because there's no alternative. MBS is the only option Saudi has uh, if someone is going to transform Saudi Arabia and save it from an eventual implosion, I think, as, a Saudi's, as the Emiratis fear. That said, Apart from the disagreement, perhaps, on whether resolving the dispute with Qatar was a good thing, we also saw the Emiratis effectively withdrawing from Yemen, although keeping a, a foothold in, in the south with the STC, the Southern Transitional Council, and continuing to uh, support southern uh, security forces. But we saw the Emiratis pulling out from coalition positions without necessarily informing the Saudis in advance, kind of deciding it was mission accomplished and there was nothing more to be gained. And that was, I think, a shock to the Saudis, especially because the Emiratis were their most important coalition partners. And we also saw in late 2020, I think, in OPEC, uh, signs of some disagreements in OPEC as well, where a Saudi energy minister, uh, Abdulaziz bin Salman, another half-brother of MBS, 
uh, called out the Emiratis in public for exceeding their quota productions. Now, other states were doing the same thing, but the Emiratis were the ones who were called out, and they didn't react well to that either. So I think we have seen signs of, of some cooling of relations. Um, MBS and MBZ don't seem to have spoken or at least been seen in public for some time. And MBS's latest initiative, which is this big, the line uh, city plan on the Red Sea coastline, again, will be, is, does seem to be geared at attracting competition away from Dubai and from Abu Dhabi uh, by sort of enforcing a regulation that if companies want to do business in Saudi, they have to have a base in the kingdom instead of, as many companies have done, basing themselves in, in the Emirates. So there are signs, and especially as COVID hopefully comes towards an end and we begin to think about a post-pandemic world, if there's greater competition for resources or for sort of attracts business, you know, that, that could also sharpen some of the, some of the Saudi Emirati um, issues that we've seen developing over the last year or two. You know, I'm wondering because it was Doha's assertive foreign policy that really got them into hot water with uh, the Emiratis in particular and the Saudis to a certain extent. But I wonder, do you see Qatar now emboldened as a result of the Al-Ula rapprochement on the foreign policy front? And, uh, for example, would they put themselves forward as the diplomatic bridge on JCPOA, which, of course, is very important to Biden? Well, I think we've seen so far after Al-Ula, this Qatar is working with the Saudis on a number of regional issues and maintaining that high-level dialogue with the Saudis. So I don't think we'll necessarily see a return to the assertive foreign policy that sort of triggered a lot of the Gulf rifts both in 2014 and 2017. If anything, it's the Emiratis who now have an assertive foreign policy, which is causing some of the same levels of sort of concern, and not just in the region, but around the world. The, the Qataris could play a role, I think, in bridging Saudi-Turkish relations. The, the Saudis and Turks, I think, are beginning to reconcile. There has been, to some extent, a thawing of what was, I think, quite a, a contested relationship, and the Qataris could, could help with that, I think. I think with the JCPOA, it's not just the Qataris, it's the Kuwaitis and Omanis as well that have an interest, I think, in ensuring that the region doesn't see a further destabilization and that um, those gaps that do exist between Iran and the international community can be bridged. So I think if there is a bridge to be played, it's not just the Qataris, it's the Qataris in tandem with Kuwait and Oman, perhaps in different areas, but all sort of trying to work to ensure that dialogue is given uh, a chance and uh, we don't see sort of both sides or one side walking away and then a further escalation. And certainly what we do see is the view from Qatar, Kuwait and Oman on dialogue does mean at least that there's no monolithic unified GCC or Saudi-led position. Obviously the Saudis, Bahrainis, to some extent the Emiratis are less keen on, on, on maybe re-engaging with Iran, but there's no unified GCC position. Um, so the fact that the GCC is now led, of course, by a Kuwaiti Secretary General could also be another way to bridge the gap by trying to at least find a way of involving the GCC at some point, at least in some of the follow-on negotiations. But for that to happen, there would have to be some sort of GCC-wide consensus, um, which I don't see at the moment. Mm. And, and as you say, uh, Hamid bin Jassim, of course, was the architect of this very assertive uh, Qatari foreign policy. Uh, but you feel now that Qataris have really uh, drawn back, uh, and this is part of the Alulia agreement. You think that they're much less inclined to that assertive approach that that he took? 
Well, it's hard to tell what was in the Al-Ula agreement just because it hasn't been made public, but I do believe that all parties have agreed to uh, maybe respect um, their, each other's interests in the region and not to, um, not to provoke and to push. Now, obviously, we've seen relations between Qatar and Saudi Arabia mending faster. We've seen, for example, Bahrain, maybe a lesser extent, the UAE lagging behind. So clearly not everything has been resolved or will take time to resolve. And we've seen, I think, Qatari and Emirati representatives meeting in Kuwait uh, to begin to work through some of the outstanding issues or some of the issues that need more time to, to, uh, to resolve. So I do think at least for now, we see dialogue continuing to try to make sure that whatever was in the Alula agreement is being resolved. Um, I think everybody will, of course, remember that in 2014, the Riyadh agreement was then followed in 2017 by the next phase of the crisis, where both sides blamed each other for not honouring commitments. And so I think there's a back of the people's minds that could always happen again. But at least for now, there's dialogue and there are meetings, which is always a good sign. Mm. Let me ask you about other foreign policy initiatives, uh, particularly the, the so-called Abraham Accords. Do you see Qatar moving towards normalization with Israel anytime soon? I don't think the Qataris would normalize with Israel. The same for the Omanis. And I think Kuwait has always been out of the picture on that front as well. I think Qatar and Israel both get what they want out of the bilateral relationship that they do have at a sort of ad hoc informal issue by issue basis, which in practice is basically centered around Qatari financial and humanitarian support for the people of Gaza, which the Israelis do value, actually. I mean, three or four days after the initial Abraham Accords with the UAE was announced in August 2020, um, Israel sent a delegation to Doha to request the Qataris continue financing uh, their financing for another six months. And so they do, I think, place value on that. So I think normalizing right now would would not bring something that both sides already don't have, which is tacit, workable cooperation when they need to work together. And I think now the Trump administration is no longer in office, the Trump administration did seem to have been pressuring other countries in the region to follow suit and to some extent putting real pressure on them as well. And also then dangling um, sometimes quite contentious uh, carrots for them to do so. Think of Morocco and the Western Sahara. Well, now the Trump administration is no longer in office, we're seeing less pressure, perhaps. Although I think from a Biden administration point of view, Biden would obviously like to see more countries sign on. They just wouldn't necessarily put the same sort of kind of strong arming tactics on the countries to do so. That sort of transactional approach that uh, Trump brought to bear is... uh is uh, in, in, in the uh, rearview mirror now. Yes, and of course Netanyahu's uh, attempts to try and use a visit to the UAE to help his election prospects has of course sparked a backlash, I think, in the UAE and, and may also have made people in the region think twice about whether you're normalizing with Israel for a strategic bilateral sense or whether it's going to be used politically by by an Israeli politician, by Benjamin Netanyahu in this case, for, for electoral purposes. Mm. Now, now, Yemen, I mean, MBS is desperate to get out of that conflict. Uh, he recklessly plunged into it uh, more than six years ago. Um, you could, as, as you've pointed out, the UAE has extricated itself, having probably pretty much achieved everything it wanted. 
but there, there are the Saudis stuck still in that quagmire. Do you think that uh, Doha could help in any way to get the Saudis out? I'm not sure how much the Qataris can do in Yemen at the moment, just because Yemen is so internally divided. And there are also memories of Qatar's previous mediation in 2007-8 between the Houthis and the then government of Ali Abdullah Saleh. And the Saudis felt, I think, threatened by that. They felt that Qatar was uh, kind of encroaching on the Saudi sphere of interest in Yemen. So I'm not sure how much the Qataris can do. I think the Saudis, the, the main challenge the Saudis face is getting out of Yemen on terms that make it look as if they haven't lost, they haven't suffered a military or operational or strategic defeat, and it respects their, their red lines. And their red lines, I think, are very much uh, have a friendly government in Sana'a, which clearly is out of the picture at the moment, with the Houthis in control, uh, secure their own border, which again is uh, right now very insecure, um, and to be able to have at least some influence in what comes next. And until the Saudis get to that point, I don't think they will feel ready to uh, be able to withdraw from Yemen. Now, what actually is in Saudi favor, I think, is that since the Biden administration came into office, we have seen an increase in Houthi attacks, in Houthi missile and drone attacks. There was one uh, just on the 14th of April, or the 15th of April this morning, in fact, another series of missile and drone attacks. And so that actually might have the impact of drawing the Saudis and the Biden administration closer together on Yemen, where the Biden administration has already committed itself to um, the defense of Saudi Arabia. And the Saudis can now claim that actually we're acting in self-defense, we're under constant bombardment. And so I think we may now see a big debate over what constitutes defensive versus offensive operations and weapons transfers. But certainly by getting the Biden administration to commit to the defense of Saudi Arabia, the Saudis are now perhaps being able to put themselves in the position of the victim of aggression, when, of course, for so long they were part of the aggressive forces. So things are changing and not changing in a way that perhaps facilitates an easy resolution to the conflict, especially as far as the Biden administration, I think, is concerned as well as the Saudis. I suppose I was thinking of, of the, the Qataris hosting the Taliban in Doha. You don't see them hosting the, the Houthis, perhaps, and uh, and bringing the sides together? Well, to the extent that anybody's hosting the Houthis, it's the Omanis, and they've done that for, for many years. And I think Oman is still the venue for all these back-channel negotiations, not only between Saudis and Houthis, but among other groups, other parties, such as the STC. Um, Tim Lenderking, the uh, special envoy for Yemen, appointed by Joe Biden, was in Muscat, meeting with the Houthis. So I think to the extent that there's a meeting point for the parties, it's Muscat, and I don't see that changing at any point in the near future. Turkey, you mentioned Turkey, that the relations with Turkey, uh, Turkey and Iran were instrumental in helping Qatar in the early days of the blockade. How important are the Turks still to Doha? Well, I think the Turkish-Qatar relationship is still important. I, I think it gives the Qataris strategic depth to some extent. Uh, the uh, relationship has now in grown to encompass, for example, a military strategic component with uh, greater sort of military industrial cooperation between the two countries. And of course, memories of 2017 will not go away fast. I mean, even if we do see a reconciliation, as we are seeing, the memories of 2017 for the Qatar 
side, I think, will be that don't put all your eggs in one basket. You know, the sight of Donald Trump seeming to switch sides should have sent shockwaves not only in Doha, but in every other Gulf capital, even even to Riyadh, where you think you have the, the backbone of your external security relationship and defense relationship suddenly called into question. The lesson then is to diversify, to make sure that you do have options, as the Qataris did in 2017, when actually it was on the, the day after Donald Trump called into question the entire basis of US policy in the Gulf, it was a Turkish parliament that rushed ratification of a, an agreement that allowed the Turks to um, support the Qataris with their base and send troops as well. And actually, many people in in the region think it was actually the Turkish move, which was to some extent important in forestalling whatever may have been planned, because it, it sent a signal to the Emiratis especially, but to the Saudis too, that you know, if something happens, you know, the Turkish... The Turks won't, won't stand by and just watch on whatever the US under Trump might have done. So I think the lesson of 2017 and of 2019, when you had the attacks on Saudi Arabia and the Trump administration did nothing effectively to do anything about it, the lesson then is don't have all your eggs in one basket. Diversify your relationships and make sure that you have options should the unthinkable ever happen again. Well, it's interesting, though, isn't it? Because MBZ and Erdogan have really gone head to head. The Turks and the Qataris, that could be another bone of contention for the Emiratis in terms of uh, them saying, you know what, we're not really that keen on reconciliation with uh, with Doha. Yeah, so I think Turkey and the UAE relationship is going to be a big flashpoint in the, in the uh, I guess, in the next phase of regional politics, although it does seem to be playing out away from the Gulf primarily. So it's playing out in Libya, in the Mediterranean, in the Horn of Africa as well, even perhaps in the Caucasus to some extent. So it, it, it seems to have, unfortunately for the region as a whole, taken on a, a sort of region-wide aspect. And of course, it is creating destabling dynamics in the Mediterranean, in the Horn of Africa. It's not contained um, within any one sub-part of the Middle East. But to the extent that it doesn't necessarily involve Qatar anymore, it seems to be a relationship between Turkey and the UAE, which is a problem, not necessarily Turkey with Qatar and the UAE. And again, that's also counterbalanced by the fact that relations between Saudi Arabia and Turkey do seem to be improving. So even though we're seeing a UAE-Turkey confrontation still very alive, you know, the Saudis, uh, at least on that respect, don't seem to be following suit to anything like the same extent. Mm. Now, look, just before I let you go, I, I want to ask you about the World Cup, which is, well, it's a year and a half away. Um, issues about the mistreatment of migrants, that remains a concern. And there is still a lurking smell of corruption about just how Qatar won the bid. Do you think all of that will be forgotten and this will be a PR triumph? Or is there still potential for it to go a bit off track well, I don't think things will be forgotten just because the British media especially, but also European media, do have track records of focusing laser-like on host cities and countries ahead of major sporting events. And of course, from a UK media perspective, Qatar is a story that is for them a big issue. I mean, we saw with the Guardian newspaper, the Guardian had this headline of 6,500 workers dying lacking really any context. Um, but of course, it was the figure that grabbed the attention. And then the boycott movement, which then began in Norway, 
regularly cited 6,500 dead as the reason to boycott the World Cup. Um, once we have a figure in, on, the, on the table, regardless of the veracity or the context of that figure, it often then drives the conversation. I think it's very much Linton Crosby's dead cat, dead cat strategy. Once you throw a dead cat onto the table, people stop what they were talking about and say, hey, there's a dead cat on the table. And the Guardian's figure of 6,500 which seemed to be gained from tallying up the numbers of deaths from worker-sending countries in Qatar for the last 10 years, doesn't necessarily tell us that much. Um, how many of those were people on work sites, for example? And how different was it, say, from the previous 10 years? Or how different is it from the number of deaths from, say, the US, the UK and other countries? To what extent is it an outlier? I mean, I'm sure it, I mean, I'm sure many of them have been attributed to some extent to construction sites, but more information would have been very useful. But instead, we saw this figure of six and a half thousand, which looks shocking, albeit over 10 years, and that grabbed and has monopolized attention. And that has now driven the boycott movement, at least in Scandinavia, which I think is being driven more by supporters, as supporters driving clubs to make a stance and then clubs making a statement and then the players then responding. Um, and again, it's, it's going to be an issue, I think, that will continue because the, the pandemic has delayed the European qualification season. So it will all take place in between now, March and, 20, March and November 2021. So we'll have regular World Cup uh, qualification weekends, where I suspect this may become an issue all over again. So I don't think it's going to go away. I think the Qataris can at least engage as they have been engaging. They've had a... They've had the International Labour Office open in, in Doha. Um, I think maybe the difficulty is that figures like the 6,500 tend to trump any sustained dialogue because it's the figure that people look at and that it's the figure that everybody remembers in the headlines. You know, there was this push, wasn't there, at one point. I think the Emiratis were, were saying, look, if you uh, just put some of those matches into our countries, we'll drop the boycott. What, what do you think? Do you, do you think the Qataris would uh, now, in the spirit of reconciliation, share out some of those matches to the Saudis and, who knows, even to the Emiratis? Well, I don't think they will do so now. There was a push in 2019 to expand the World Cup from 32 to 48 teams, which will now take place in 2026 when it's in the US, Canada and Mexico. But certainly a lot of people saw the attempt to expand for 2022 as part of a Saudi and Emirati attempt to force Qatar to, if, to share games. You know, if Qatar couldn't be stripped of the World Cup, as we saw some, some people trying to push for that in 2017, if they couldn't be stripped of it, at least make them share games and very much the attempt to try and expand the tournament to, a, to, a, to an extent where it almost couldn't take place in such a small country as Qatar was, I think, an attempt to try and get that maybe through the back door. And there, were, there was talk at the time of a $25 billion investment into FIFA linked to Saudi Arabia. Now, that didn't eventually happen, and we'll see the expansion in 2026. So I think Qatar will go ahead um, on its own. But what I think, especially now the blockade has been lifted... We will see, I think, thousands of Saudis, uh, Bahrainis, Emiratis, Egyptians all going to the games because this is, after all, a World Cup on their doorstep. And I think especially from Saudi Arabia and Egypt's point of view, it's definitely a tournament they could easily qualify for. Maybe less so for Bahrain or the UAE. But 
I think had we been in a situation in 2022 when individuals, football fans, wanted to go to the games and were being prevented to by their governments, that could have been a backlash on those governments because it's not every day the World Cup's on your doorstep. So I think the World Cup will bring people together from the region, maybe offset some of the international negativity that we've seen in the coverage. Well, next time I have you on the podcast, I'll ask you to pick the uh, the winner of the World Cup. <laughs> well, I would say Norway, but uh, they, they may not qualify now. And of course, the, they may even decide to boycott. Christian, thank you very much. Thanks, Bill. You've been listening to the Arab Digest podcast. My guest today was Christian Coates Ulrichsen, Middle East Fellow at Rice University's Baker Institute for Public Policy. His most recent book, published by Hearst, is Qatar and the Gulf Crisis. We welcome your comments. If you're not already a member and you want to join the club, you can find out how by going to ArabDigest.org. If you're a student, we have a new rate of £10 a month or £100 per year. For academics and retirees, we're now offering a rate that amounts to a 70% discount. And subscriptions are now available to university libraries. Check us out on ArabDigest.org and follow us on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. I'm William Law, editor of the Arab Digest, essential reading from independent sources.